Welcome to the Indisposable Podcast, produced by Upstream and supported this season by Patagonia. Thanks for joining for another episode celebrating solutions to plastic pollution. All right, well, welcome everybody. I am super excited to have my good friend Conrad McCarran from As You Sow here. Conrad is focused on shareholder advocacy, really working to get corporations to become good corporate citizens through putting pressure on them from shareholders. And they've done a lot of work with corporations around their need to reduce single-use plastics and have more responsibility around getting their packaging back and doing something useful with it. Uh, As you saw, and Conrad have just released their fifth Waste and Opportunity Report, and we brought Conrad onto the podcast today to talk a little bit about that. So welcome, Conrad. We're thrilled to have you here. Thanks, Matt. It's my pleasure. Great to be here. So Conrad, I, you know, you and I have known each other for a long time, and I'd actually just like to start with hearing a little bit more about how you got involved and interested in working on plastic pollution and in waste and recycling issues. Sure. Um, Well, I had a previous career as a journalist in Washington, D.C. I uh, went to grad school there, and for about 12 years, I was a reporter covering Congress across the environmental uh, spectrum, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, Superfund, RICRA, all those big uh, environmental laws. And so I became a real environmental legislation junkie, I guess you could say, and uh, very interested in how our federal environmental laws worked. After a while, though, I became a bit disillusioned with that and wanted to get into something where I could be a little more of a direct advocate. And so I learned from a colleague about this whole area of shareholder advocacy, which was new to me, which is that you as a minor shareholder of a company actually have quite a bit of power because you can submit a non-binding resolution to a publicly traded company that can get voted on by all the shareholders. And even though it's a voluntary uh, non-binding resolution, it can have enormous influence and many, many improvements in our social and environmental situation have occurred because of shareholder advocacy over the last 20 years. And so I uh, moved to California in the early 90s and became affiliated with Tom Van Dyke, who's the founder of As You Sow, and I was really its first employee. And uh, I've been with them now for over 20 years as this group has grown really from a part-time whim to a very impressive full-time organization with uh, 20 employees working in five different issue areas and and has done some incredible things to help uh, improve social and environmental corporate policies. You know, I I think when people think about environmental activism, you know, they think about, you know, Greenpeace and protests and things like that. But not many people think about shareholders and the ability of shareholders to influence big corporations. Can you talk to, tell me a little bit more about how, how does that actually work? Sure. We see it as another tool in the social change toolbox. As you say, traditionally, people think about protest or filing lawsuits or policy changing laws, but shareholder advocacy can be another valuable adjunct to all of those uh, modes of social change. And It has to do with the fact that we are uh, fortunate to have securities laws here that are fairly uh, friendly to shareholders and allow you, if you only have $1,000 worth of shares in a company and you've held it for a year, you can uh, basically file a shareholder resolution. 
And uh, there's a lot of complications. There's a lot more issues to it than that, a lot of nuances. But uh, the point being, a small shareholder can have a big impact. You don't have to be a multi-billionaire. You don't have to be a major investor in a company to be able to bring up uh, an array of social and environmental issues. And so we saw this first uh, way back in the 70s when during the apartheid era of Nelson Mandela. And this is when shareholder advocacy really cut its teeth. And at that time, a lot of U.S. companies were in South Africa, and there was an effort by religious investors to have big companies like General Motors and Bank of America and so forth divest from South Africa until apartheid was abolished. And so this was a campaign that went on for several years, and they did manage to get many companies to leave South Africa. And in fact, Nelson Mandela himself singled out shareholder advocacy as one of the factors in hastening the end of apartheid. So that was high praise indeed. And since then, uh, a variety of groups, uh, social and green investors and religious investors have realized this is a great adjunct to their work as professionals. And uh, it's most often used by firms that we think of as socially responsible investors or ESG investors, which stands for Environment, Social and Governance, where we look at screening out uh, negative factors and investing in companies that have uh, more positive records in these areas. Um, But even the good companies have problems. And so to supplement that, we do start engagements with companies as investors. And if the dialogue doesn't go well, we have the ability to amplify it to file a shareholder proposal. At this point, the companies often come to the table if they haven't been there because they do not want this shareholder proposal uh, to show up at their annual meeting, where which is basically a big pep rally where they're all saying how great the company is. And here come some activists to say, no, you've got slave labor in Uzbekistan. No, you've got toxics in your plastic. You know, no, you've, you're, you're using, uh, you've got water pollution and so forth. And so often you have leverage there where you can engage the company to give you much of what you want in exchange for dropping the shareholder proposal. But if that doesn't happen, yes, then you can move ahead and go with a vote and Um, Now, the voting is a little bit different from what you think of as voting in an election. It's very, very hard to get a majority vote because so much of the power still is vested in traditional value neutral investors, banks and insurance companies. Um, So a lot of the votes uh, used to be 10, 15 percent. Now they're they're bigger, 30 and 40 percent. But the point being, we have done an enormous amount with minority votes. And I think that's the message. You know, it may sound like, oh, we didn't get 50%, we lost. That's often what the media says. But what happens is you may get 30% and you may get a company like McDonald's to phase out polystyrene plastic cups worldwide, which is actually what happened to us three or four years ago. Uh, We had a strong vote and then McDonald's saw the handwriting on the wall and actually agreed to do that, which had uh, was one of the watershed moments, I think, in the plastic pollution efforts so far. So, So this is a great tool that we've been able to use in a variety of areas. And um, I got interested in waste, I think, way back around the turn of the century, around 2000, mainly because I would look at companies like Coke and Pepsi, and I would look at the recycling rates that looked really pathetic, you know, like 10, 15, 20% for aluminum, plastic. And I thought, you know, this this is incredible. What a huge waste of materials. We can do better. And, and I think that's really what drew me in was the amount of waste that we saw happening with, with packaging and, and not just junk packaging, but valuable packaging. And that that led me to start a waste program, which has 
um, started out looking at beverages, but now has broadened to the whole consumer goods sector. So break that down for our, our audience here. So do you guys literally talk to the, uh, as you said, the investment advisory service? Is that, okay, did I get it right? Excellent. Right. right. Yeah. So, so you, right. you actually have to call them up and, and make your pitch. So you, you send them the shareholder resolution and you say, hey, this is, this is why this is important. If this company were to make this change, it's not only good for the environment, but it's also good for this company's long-term uh, economic health because these are shareholders we're talking about, right? They, they want these companies to succeed economically so they benefit. Right, exactly. You, they have analysts who are specialized in each social issue area and they allow us to make a presentation generally each year where we make our best argument and then there's Q&A and they can pick apart our proposals or we, and so then they, they have um, a couple months uh, and then they talk to the company and then they gather data and then they make their assessment. And one of the things that helps us get positive recommendations is if we can demonstrate, for instance, that a company lags its peers. That's one of the reasons we've spent a lot of time doing reports like the one we'll discuss in a few minutes where we rank companies uh, performance. So if we can show that uh, Walmart has made a commitment to phase out plastic bags, but Kroger has not, then if we have a shareholder proposal at Kroger, these uh, advisory companies generally will approve of that because they don't want the company to be seen as a laggard if there are other competitors who have successfully developed these policies. So it's always hard to say there's so many factors that go into a decision, but that's one of the ones that tends to be in our favor is if we can show that the company is lagging its peers in a particular sector on on the ask that you know we have before them. I would imagine that earned media is also important in this. So, you know, months or weeks before a shareholder vote, if there's some some bad news about the company's branded pollution being out in the environment that that can really potentially hold have influence. So how, do, how does that work? I mean, you guys are an independent organization, but we know that you, you talk to and you've got uh, partnerships or, or connections with other organizations or other businesses. Like how, how are you able to, to you know, stay independent and do your shareholder advocacy, but at the same time ensure that there's other work, good work that's happening to elevate um, the issues that you're raising? Like how do you actually even decide like what to focus on? Well, we do look at issues to see if they are ripe for consideration, I guess you'd say. There's so many issues you could focus on, but some of them are back burner issues. Um, <laughs> I guess you could say that I um, started out you know, with waste and recycling as a what was definitely a back burner issue for many years. Let's face it, uh, climate change is the defining environmental issue of our time. And up until about a year or two ago, it got all the attention uh, or most of the attention of the uh, shareholder community. And, and if it wasn't climate, it was like uh, water issues or toxicity in products. Those tend to be three big defining issues that get a lot of attention. However, the plastic pollution issue just suddenly exploded, as you know, about three years ago and moved from a back burner issue to very much of a front burner issue in Europe, especially in the UK, and now pretty much globally. And so we've been fortunate to be in the right place at the right time as a group that had been working on this issue when it was a back burner issue. We, we had developed contacts with companies, with NGOs, with academics, so that we were able to be in a really good position when things began to heat up that we did have some of these early victories where we got companies like Procter & Gamble and Unilever to make commitments to phase out non-recyclable plastic packaging. 
And as I mentioned, we got McDonald's to phase out polystyrene cups. And so each one of those fed itself, I think. Uh, other companies would see if a big peer was doing it. Like now we had Yum this year also agree to phase out polystyrene over the next couple of years. So Yum Brands is KFC and Pizza Hut and, and Taco Bell, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's really the biggest restaurant company in the world. So, uh, and they have a very big presence in China, which is, of course, is one of the countries with the biggest plastic pollution challenges. So we like to take issues that are, are ripe for consideration. And, and right now, I think, you know, the next two or three years, plastics will definitely be front and center. But we're looking initially for them to uh, put more recycled content, which is still a big issue, into the containers, find ways to raise state and national recycling rates, and, um, and look for some public policy issues, initiatives they could um, support. And sadly, one of the things that has lingered from, from that time until today is opposition to the most proven uh, effective form of increasing container recycling rates, which are uh, deposit laws or bottle bills, as they're known. Ten states have them, um, but Coke and Pepsi have fought them vigorously for years. They view them as unfair taxes and um, on, on their um, packaging. Uh, but they've been incredibly helpful and, and successful when they are used. And ironically, um, it's the bottle bill states that have the cleanest plastic needed for these same beverage companies to put increased amounts of recycled content into their bottles. And so today when you, you will hear companies complaining that they can't get enough recycled content so that they can boost that that content in plastic bottles, it's often because it's coming out of the deposit law states and there's only 10 states and there's not enough to go around. And uh... yeah, this thing has always driven me absolutely nuts where, you know, you have the beverage industry that says we love recycling. We want more recycling, but they have opposition to the most fundamental uh, policy that can boost recycling for their bottles and cans. I'm wondering like how you've seen this maybe the softening of that position over time because 2006 it was like no way no how over my dead body are we going to do deposits but i'm just curious like if you've seen evolution in time you know because of this the emerging awareness and the and the public's outrage about plastic pollution if that's actually starting to have an impact on the way that these big companies feel about uh container deposits or extended producer responsibility which is a kind of policy where corporations would have to pay to develop and improve the systems to get their packaging back. Right. So that's a great segue into the discussion of extended producer responsibility or EPR. And for our 2011 report, uh, which was our third report, we failed a number of companies, um, including Nestle Waters North America. And usually we don't hear a lot from the companies when we fail them, but this was an unusual response. After that report, we heard from the CEO of Nestle Waters North America, a guy named Kim Jeffrey. This was in 2011? Is that when this was? Right. Um, 2011. I remember this. And one of his colleagues called us up and said, you know what? You guys just flunked us in your report. Um, but instead of like really chewing me out, he said, you know what? We probably deserved it. We weren't doing a lot. This has been a wake-up call for this company. And we would actually like to engage with you because we think that we may be able to endorse this EPR. We, we actually think it's a, a reasonable policy. 
And as you and I know, what followed over the next year was a rather unprecedented experiment where Nestle Waters North America and As You Sow and Upstream um, embarked on a uh, kind of a tentative partnership to try to get EPR approved by other major brands out there like, like Coke and Pepsi. And um, Kim Jeffrey, who was kind of a maverick CEO, had an unusual alliance with Bobby Kennedy Jr., who was, of course, the head of Waterkeeper. And they both went out and um, pitched, you know, Bobby Kennedy pitched the environmental community and Kim Jeffrey pitched the business community to say, look, this plastic is our responsibility and it's getting worse. We should suck it up and we should pay for the collection of these bottles and cans. And we spent, God, a couple of years on this. And long story short, um, it wasn't a, a success in the traditional sense. You know, Nestle Waters is, a, you know, not the top tier uh, company in this area. And they were crushed basically by Coke and Pepsi. You said, no way, we're not going to do this right now. And so on its face, it was quite frustrating. But what we did, Matt, you know, we, we laid this incredible groundwork that is now, I think, paying off in spades. Um, the fact that we had pushed this issue out there led a lot of companies to realize they had some responsibility. And so it was a response of saying, no, we're not ready to pony up EPR and take full responsibility for the financial support of collecting uh, bottles and cans. But we know there's some responsibility and we should start to contribute. And that led to, uh, about a year later, the development of what was called the Closed Loop Fund. And about, I think about nine of the 10 companies that we had engaged as shareholders ended up being initial members of this fund, which was led by Walmart. And they committed $100 million to basically improve the recycling infrastructure here in the US, which is part of the problem. So in that way, I, I felt like it was um, an incremental victory even though EPR is not, and still is not the law of the land, but it laid the groundwork for what now has become top of mind for everyone here on plastic pollution. You know, I, I remember this moment because, you know, we were, we were intimately involved in this process as well, really working to advance state extended producer responsibility for packaging policy. And, you know, we have a savvy audience, but just to kind of bring everybody that, that doesn't know what EPR means, Essentially, extended producer responsibility means that a corporation or businesses need to take financial responsibility for getting their product or their package back and doing something useful with it when we're done with it as consumers. And there's lots of other things that, that can go into that, but EPR, the principle, is really about corporations taking responsibility for the environmental and social impacts of their stuff. Um, so anyway, we work with Conrad and lots of other companies and organizations uh, on legislation. And for about three years there, we, we were introducing bills into a number of different states. And to make a long story short, we failed. And I think when I look back at the postmortem of why we didn't win then, there's a couple of things that jump out at me. You know, the first is that most legislators kind of thought that recycling was was fixed. You know, they're like, I have a blue cart. I put my recyclables in here. Like, this, what what is there to see here? This 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 works. Even though we knew that that system was broken and was breaking, literally as we were talking about it. The other thing is that um, you know China was still accepting our low value recyclables and our low value plastics, which they're not right. which they're not doing today, right? <laughs> Um, that's a, just a fundamental game changer around the economics of recycling. But the other thing 
at, at this moment is that plastic pollution was still not a well understood issue by the general public. Um, and even most policymakers, even most businesses or corporations at that time, you know, we're talking like 2013, 2014, um, 2012, right? It was just starting to emerge as an issue for people to understand and, and to care about. And I think what's different today is that we've now had, you know, five years of just growing awareness and outrage about plastic pollution in the environment. We started to connect the dots between, you know, your your Starbucks iced coffee cup and the fracking for natural gas that's happening, you know, exactly. in, in Appalachia yep. and the pipeline construction and our friends on the environmental justice side that are fighting these polluting facilities in Cancer Alley all along the Gulf Coast, literally fighting for their health and their lives. So, you know, I think what we've seen is like a tremendous amount of awareness raising and movement building that's happened through society, but also with policymakers and with corporations. We are realizing now things are so bad. <laughs> you know, there was just, there still continues to be a stream of incredible reports almost every month of plastic somewhere that you wouldn't expect it on the, on the top of the Alps, you know, in the bottom of the Marianas Trench, in your poop, you know, it's, it's it, everywhere. And the pervasiveness of this, I think, is really what has caused global concern by consumers. And now companies are having to take it seriously. And so now the conversation isn't just make your packaging recyclable. It's that, look, folks, we're reaching peak plastic soon. You got to start ratcheting back. You got to start making some tough decisions about moving your packaging to either a new form of delivery or moving it away from plastic to another more sustainable material. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's all this dialogue amongst corporations and, and brands around the circular economy and support of the circular economy. And it's one thing to say that, but it's something else to support the policies and the infrastructure that are actually going to build and create the circular economy. And it seems like, you know, what we've been talking about for, gosh, like 12, 13 years now, Conrad, has been how do we get the, the companies to finally invest to, to support the policies and invest in the infrastructure that's really going to change the experience for most of the people on this planet in the way that they interact with the packaging that these brands are putting out. And so, you know, I, I think for us, this constant message that, you know, you and I have been working on is that it is your problem. You know, if, you're, if your brand is on the beach, mm -hmm. um, if your brand is, is polluting the environment, if your brand is, is harming people and harming wildlife and harming the planet, that's your responsibility. You got to fix that. We'll work with you to fix it. You know, we'll partner with you. We will help you pass laws like we will get it done. But it's your fundamentally, it's your problem to fix. And you know, for me, that's the part that's got that got me excited about extended producer responsibility and the circular economy. You know, 20 some odd years ago when I was in college, and it would, it's what keeps me wanting to get up in the morning. And it's been fun to have you as my friend and partner in this for you know going on at least at least 10 years now, Conrad. I can't remember yep, the yep. first conversation, but it's been at least 10 years, and also just really fun to connect with you today. So. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for your time, Matt. And we will get EPR done. I know we will. It's coming. It's coming soon. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. And that's our show. If you like what you're hearing, help spread the word. Subscribe to the Indisposable podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Add a review. Talk us up. Nobody spreads a message like you. The Indisposable podcast is brought to you by Upstream. 
sparking innovative solutions to plastic pollution, envisioning a world without it, and empowering businesses, communities, and individuals to imagine and co-create this future with us. You can find resources mentioned on today's episode as well as learn more about Upstream's work at www.upstreamsolutions.org. Follow us on social and join the movement. There's a better way than throwaway.